Hey listeners, this is Steve. When death becomes an acceptable outcome of the practice of medicine, how does that affect us? On this week's edition of the AC Podcast, Andy and I invited Larry Worthen, the Executive Director for the Christian Medical and Dental Association, to hear from him what medical professionals and patients are experiencing on the ground. You want to stick with this interview as we cover various topics like the definition of terms, effective referrals, palliative care, human dignity, all of which you must understand in order to get a clear grasp of the issue. Also note that this interview was brought to you in preparation for our upcoming AC Literary Expedition, where we will invite two doctors, Ewan Gallagher and Raphael Samuel, to discuss doctor-assisted suicide and the freedom of conscience. So join us on Sunday, September 25th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time for a time of learning, discussion, and Q&A. Registration is open now for a limited number of spots, so register today at apologeticscanada.com forward slash A-C-L-E. Again, it's apologeticscanada.com forward slash A-C-L-E. Looking forward to seeing you all there. Now, let's get to the interview. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever or whenever you're listening to this. Steve here from Apologetics Canada. I'm back for another edition of the AC Podcast with our very own Andy Steiger. Good to be here. All right. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. This is one I've been looking forward to for a while now. Just to give our listeners a bit of a background, we do this I guess you could call it a quarterly online event called AC Literary Expedition. And uh, we have one that's coming up in September, where we're going to invite a couple of special guests to talk about doctor-assisted suicide and issues of the freedom of conscience. And normally when we have a literary expedition coming up, we provide some resources for the participants to look through. And so uh, we actually managed to get a hold of uh, Larry Worthen, the Executive Director of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Uh, Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us, Larry. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the topic. Yeah, and so I understand that uh, you have a a bit of a legal background, is that correct? That's right. I graduated from Dalhousie Law School in 1981. I did my articles in Northern Manitoba. Then I felt a call to the ministry. I spent 12 years managing and leading groups in the not-for-profit sector, 12 years with the provincial government, and I've been with CMDA Canada uh, since 2012. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. So if I didn't mention earlier, uh, for the upcoming literary expedition, the two guests that we're going to invite are medical doctors. And so I thought this would be a really good conversation to have from more of a a legal perspective, given your background. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, As we get started, we always do this with our interviewees, um, because we want to make sure that you're not just a voice or a talking head or whatever. You are Larry, or you're you're a person, you're human. So Without, you know, at the risk of getting too philosophical, who is Larry Worthen? I'm, uh, I am a lawyer. I've had to come to accept that over time. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name's Larry, and I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm also a husband uh, to my wife, Dr. Lindy Gagnon, and a father to my uh, son, Dr. George Worthen, and my daughter. Lucy Tanya, and I'm proud to say I have eight grandchildren so far. Mm. So praise God for that. Uh, I'm also an ordained deacon in the Catholic Church uh, and have been since 2012. And I'm proud to say I'm the executive director of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, an assembly family of 1,500 Christian doctors and dentists from across Canada. You know, just kind of going a little bit deeper. Larry, if you had a day off, by the way, uh, even lining up this interview, you're a busy guy, man. But imagine you had a day off, Larry. What would you do with that day off? Well, you know, I'll tell you, um, last week, my wife and I had a day off, and we went up to the Annapolis Valley to a vineyard, and we had uh, tried a couple of glasses of local wine and a nice charcuterie board, and then walked around the vineyard afterwards. So 
that's my idea of a good time. Awesome. Sounds nice. sounds great. Beautiful day. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I uh, um, enjoy those sorts of days as well. Good charcuterie board and wine. Uh, you and I met in in Ontario. And after after I met you, Larry, I told Steve, I was like, man, we got to we got to have an interview with this guy. Larry is uh, he is passionate and well informed uh, on this subject, as as, of course, you should be leading the CMDA. But the thing as well that I think is significant and perhaps as I could see as part of your passion in this area is uh, your so your wife and child are both physicians. That's right. My wife's the family doctor, and my son is almost a qualified nephrologist. He'll be fully qualified in October. Is that what led you to get more involved in this area? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I was uh, happy in a very lovely job with the uh, with Court Services Division at the Department of Justice here in Nova Scotia. And uh, but I felt like you know the Lord was calling me to do more. I was specifically concerned about my son and his ability to practice. Uh, medicine as a Christian. And I remember asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? And I noticed that they were looking for someone to fill this role. So I applied uh, and, uh, you know, everything worked out. And and here I am after 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now, CMDA, could you tell us a little bit more about what it is that CMDA does? I mean, I've seen the name in various places, including a court case out of Ontario and, and whatnot. And so I, I, and I see that you have representatives all over the place, um, just th throughout Canada. So, but what exactly is it that CMDA does? Well, we help people incorporate Christian faith and medical and dental practice. Uh, you know, seven, uh, in uh, 1970, when the organization was founded, that wasn't very controversial. Uh, today, it's radical, it's revolutionary that someone should actually bring their faith into the practice of medicine. Uh, and that's what we focus on. And so we have uh, chaplains in almost every English, English language medical school across Canada. We're trying to move into some French language medical schools. We have national conferences, publication that comes out three times a year. We're involved in several projects now in trying, trying to make the public aware of the risks to vulnerable people associated with euthanasia. Mm -hmm. And we're also working on a project uh, called uh, Dying with Christ that will help uh, Christian uh, communities uh, understand the Christian view of death, because we think that's something that's being eroded. So essentially, that's what we're all about. We try to uh, reach out to Christian doctors and dentists, uh, encourage them, and empower them to live out their faith in a powerful and real way in their practice. So, Larry, uh, you you brought up uh, euthanasia, doctor assisted suicide, those kinds of things, and that is sort of the topic that we want to address uh, today and for the literary expedition that's coming up. Um, can we define some terms to get started? doctor assisted suicide, euthanasia, what's the difference? And I've also heard legally in Canada, we often use the term medical assistance in dying. And I've seen many doctors that who are opposed to using that specific term. So could you help us kind of wrap our head around all of that? So what's the difference there? Sure. Uh, it is. It can be complicated. It's probably kind of a word salad to some extent. The first distinction you need to know is that there's two ways that this type of procedure can occur. One is for a physician to prescribe and provide a lethal cocktail to a patient, which the patient self-administers, and that's called assisted suicide. That's commonly used in the American states that have legalized this, hmm. and the numbers tend to be much, much smaller. In Canada, I think there's something, maybe only seven. The recent numbers came out last week, and in 2021, I think there are only seven cases of self-administered cocktail in Canada. The vast majority are what is called euthanasia, where the patient is given a lethal injection by a physician to end their life. Now, medical assistance in dying is the euphemism created in Canada. Some say to obscure the reality of what's actually happening, but that is the term that's used by the government. And the term medical assistance in dying includes assisted suicide and also euthanasia. 
Okay. Yeah, that that's very helpful. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna let's get we're gonna go a little bit deeper here to kind of kind of go backwards a little bit because I I got to be honest with you, there's so many things I want to ask you, and I want to just jump right into the very heart of this conversation. But we know that as people are listening to this, they need to kind of be brought up to speed so that they can kind of enter into the conversation, if you will. And I and it was interesting to me because I was this this point was really made clear to me by my neighbor actually. Uh, you know, Larry, when you and I met, we were both speaking at a, a conference in in Toronto at, at Wycliffe College. And uh, the like the day before I flew out to that event, uh, my neighbor, uh, he and I were chatting and he was asking where I was heading and I was telling him where I was going. And he's like, oh, what are, we, what are you speaking on? And and so I began to explain, you know, the issues that are going on right now uh, around uh, made. And and my neighbor was like flabbergasted. He's just like going, "What on earth?" And and I can't help but think that there's a lot of Canadians that just have absolutely no idea what's what's going on, and the the sorts of discussions that are happening, and the kinds of pressure that physician and patients are are in, and and different organizations. And so, you know, as we get into what's going on, let's let's kind of go back to 2016. Larry, and kind of on-ramp people into this conversation with regards to the Carter versus Canada, what took place there, and how, how has that kind of changed the, the landscape of really uh, of palliative care, I would say? Well, there's a couple of things. One is the decision itself, and then the second piece, which I think is perhaps uh, even more uh, crucial, is the actual implementation. Uh, but the decision, you know, was originally, people don't realize this, but it was a BC Superior Court judge's decision. This judge was uh, sitting alone uh, in the case of Carter and uh, Gloria Taylor was the other plaintiff. Uh, Taylor was someone with ALS who wanted to get uh, euthanasia. She argued that uh, suicide was her right and that if she didn't, if the euthanasia wasn't provided, she would eventually have to die earlier than otherwise because she wouldn't be able to enter her life once ALS got too advanced. The judge in, in this case uh, was a former dean of the law school and had been an abortion rights advocate before the case. Her decision was extensive and eventually went up as far as the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, the problem with the decision. And this is really a problem with Canadian law in general, was that the the, uh, the original judge, one judge sitting alone, set a criteria that got approved by the Supreme Court of Canada, and that criteria uh, is very very um, uh, subjective. It's subjective both in terms of the mind of the patient and subjective in terms of the mind of the doctor as to whether the conditions exist or not. The, the doctor just has to reasonably believe that these conditions exist, and that's sufficient to allow the person to die. Now, I won't get into the legal aspects of that, but suffice to say that once that criteria is in place, then it becomes very difficult in today's Canadian political system to alter that because our politicians are unwilling to be seen to be challenging the courts, even though constitutionally they have something called the notwithstanding clause. So the, the Parliament of Canada can't overrule the decision of the Supreme Court. It's just that they choose not to. And uh, with this criteria in place, uh, originally in 2016, when the original legislation was passed, uh, they included a criteria called, said that saying that death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Most Canadians think that euthanasia is for. Uh, people who are uh, actively dying. And that's absolutely not the case. It is for those people, but it's been extended far more than that. This uh, reasonably foreseeable clause was it was designed to be put in there to protect people like people with chronic illness, people with disabilities, people with mental health concerns, because it was felt by the politicians that the Canadian people wanted a made to be focused in on those people who were actively dying. But that clause was struck down by the Quebec Superior Court. Our current Liberal government refused to appeal it, and uh, the legislation was recast. Uh, it took away the reasonably foreseeable clause, which now means that in Canada, uh, a person with an illness, disease, or disability 
uh, as of March 17th, 2023, that will also include people with mental health issues. Now, do, in, now with regards to 2023, is, is that it just automatically will include or will it come up for debate where they're currently researching this? Because that, that part was unclear to me. Oh, well, it's the most, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, not the opinion of CMDA. This is the most absurd thing I've ever heard, the most irresponsible situation where they, the, the, the issue of mental health going into the legislation, the Minister of Justice had said, we are still going to have a prohibition on people getting euthanasia when their primary concern is mental health. It went to the Senate. A Senate committee said no, mental health should be in. It went back to the House of Commons. They agreed mental health should be should be in. And they said, okay, we'll give ourselves two years to come up with a criteria. So there's it's a sunset clause. Mental health is in as of March 17th, 2023. And all that's required is that actually nothing's required. It will automatically happen. And hopefully by that time, they will have criteria. The problem is that you have very prominent psychiatrists, like one former president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association, saying that no one should ever consider any mental illness as being irremediable, because mental illness is here today, it can be gone tomorrow, or a new treatment can be found, or whatever. And he's out prominently criticizing this move and you can just see the folly of it that a government would say okay and we'll give ourselves two years to come up with a criteria but whether the criteria come or not we're still going to uh implement this in march of 2023 this is something that i see in discussions revolving around doctor assisted suicide or euthanasia and what have you the the idea is that once the door is open just the crack the door is only going to open wider and wider it, it never really closes any narrower and so it it only the the it only extends farther out and never contracts and that seems to be what we're seeing would you agree with that is that is that what's happening and is, is this how it always works like once you get the foot in the door the scope of you know who gets to receive euthanasia, for example, it only broadens. Would you agree with that? I think that uh, we've seen uh, you know uh, situations in the United States, for instance, where they've been able to maintain you know the assisted suicide has far fewer people uh, access it. Uh, I think it's because people don't want to take responsibility for their own death. Yeah. Uh, they're, they feel much more at ease about um, just going to sleep and having the doctor kill them. So I think that in the United States, that's happened. In Canada, um, I could see this as soon as the Carter decision came out. This was as clear to me because the courts uh, had gone way beyond what the jurisdiction of courts should be. The courts shouldn't be setting criteria. It should be up to the politicians, the government, to set the criteria. If the courts set the criteria and then, and then the elected politicians are afraid to challenge it, then what you've got is one person, one judge in BC setting this. And then our politicians being too gutless to say, wait a minute, vulnerable people are going to be killed here. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly what's happening. So that so that some very well-positioned, powerful people can get access to euthanasia at the end of their life. They're willing to sacrifice the lives of so many vulnerable people who don't have choices in their lives, don't have autonomy, and who are already uh, being told, if you're a disabled person, you know, there's, you're being told all the time in our culture that you're not as valuable as an able-bodied person. So when someone comes along and your life is difficult and you don't get access to certain services, and you don't think you're valuable anyway, and maybe you don't have home supports, what are you going to do? It becomes very enticing. Well, not just enticing, but you almost, you, I think that for many of these people that we've talked to, they, because they feel like they're a burden on society, they almost feel like it's their duty that, or like that they're doing, you know, society a favor, or there's a societal pressure for them to end their life. Now, Larry, let's, let's just back up just a little bit here. And let's just talk about how this, you know, with regards to what you're saying, Steve, this law has already 
has already changed. I mean, there there were limitations that were initially there that have been removed, haven't they? That's exactly right. Uh, the limitation that death must be reasonably foreseeable has been removed. The limitation that mental health uh, that uh, not be included uh, has been removed. Uh, and now they're currently working on uh, allowing advanced directives, which uh, allows a person to write in their will or give instructions to their a substitute decision maker that they want to end their life at a certain point. That's certainly being considered right now by the Parliament of Canada, as is allowing children to be euthanized. What about the ass assessment period and required witnesses? Have that also changed? Yeah, I, I, th that's a good point. There, there were two smaller things there. Uh, there was a waiting period when death was reasonably foreseeable. They've withdrawn that. So uh, there is a waiting period now if you have a, uh, if you have a disease or disability of three months. Um, just in terms of those waiting periods, uh, I heard a scary story the other day from someone whose colleague was an emergency room physician. Actually, this person works in the emergency room. And one of their colleagues said, you know, one of us should become a maid assessor. So that if someone comes into the emergency room and wants maid, they can be assessed immediately and then only require one more assessment so that they can end their lives quicker. The reality here is that death has become uh, a medical procedure. Hmm. And the result of death is an acceptable medical procedure. Uh, you remember before I told you that it was, it was not just the law, but it was also the implementation. The implementation was done by uh, pro-euthanasia people who believe that if a person wants to die, they should be able to die, no questions asked. And in implementing it, it was made part of the Canadian health system. So that meant that every hospital had to have uh, access to MAID. We have a Cadillac MAID access system from coast to coast to coast. And, and MAID is the essential service under the Canada Health Act. Now, well, palliative care, psychiatric service, other things are not. Yeah, because I, I wanted to bring that up. Just So let's just be really, really clear what we're saying here. So we're saying that our medical health system guarantees made, but things like palliative care are not guaranteed. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Estimates are that only 30 to 50% of Canadians have access to proper palliative care. That's from the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association. I, I think that's just striking. Yeah, because I, I, I'm thinking like just from um, the perspective of compassion, like that that's unconscionable to me that we're so quick to offer death uh, when there are other things that we can do for them that I, I think is more affirming of their human dignity. But I, I don't know, like, am I a dinosaur in this? Well, the problem is that in the implementation it was like a cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, in the implementation, they chose people who were pro-euthanasia and radical autonomous. So uh, their perception is that death and life, there's no difference in value. Your perception and my perception, according to the Christian worldview, is that death, that life is uh, more valuable than death. Life is the goal of medicine. It's to be protected because it's valuable, because God created human beings and said that it was very good, and he sent his son to the world to redeem humanity, to put us on the right path to eternity with God, and he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. This is the essential Imago Dei belief of the Christian faith. This is what's actually being challenged, and the reverse is now being acted out in our hospitals. So the result of deaths is a valid result of medical intervention now, so, there, there, so that life is not valued more than death. The two are equal in today's medical system. Now, this, this gets reflected directly in how physicians are viewed more and more particularly here in Canada. And this was something that came out in the conference, uh, Larry, that you and I were at, and particularly with physicians that we heard from. And there was one uh, speaker in particular, Far Curlin, who uh, wrote the book, uh, The Way of Medicine, uh, co-authored. Co and one of the points he brings up that I think that's significant here is the shift from 
medical health professionals to to service provider models where doctors now have become these providers of services. It's a very it's a very reductive, dehumanizing, in fact, way of viewing a physician where they actually, and this I think is critical here, the autonomy of the patient supersedes the autonomy of the physician. The physician has been reduced to this provider that in many ways is being forced to give the, the patient what they want. Is that how you see it? Yeah, there's a couple things happening at the same time. One is, you know, consumerism. Uh, the other is the advent of progressivism, uh, you know, the woke mentality, which uh, does not have any sense of its own uh, uh, subjectivity. The right or wrong of it is that in the mind of the progressive, uh, faith has no place in the practice of medicine because there's no place in their lives. Therefore, it should have no place in the doctor's life. So that's happening uh, at the same time which should frighten all of us, is that if you reduce a physician down to a bureaucratic functionary, then the interests of the institution, the interests of the healthcare system, will be uh, predominant in their minds. And if the healthcare system is broken because of lack of resources, uh, there is an inherent conflict of interest in that type of physician who, uh, if if their success within the bureaucracy is to uh, preserve their own position, their own power, their own status. Uh, there's lots of disturbing situations in Canada right now, but this is really disturbing. And, and our doctors are so upset. That was one of the things that I thought was interesting that Far Curlin and other physicians that were participating in this conference brought up. But but far particularly in his book is just the number the amount of burnout happening in the medical community, and you could appreciate the kind of stress and pressure that these physicians are under. Many of whom went into medicine because of their conscience, their their desire is to care for people. Many of them uh, are you know are are just very caring people, right? They they didn't go into medicine because they wanted to take human life, right? They, they went into medicine to care for people and to, to provide for their, you know, medical flourishing, if you will, their health. And, and now they've, they've got all sorts of the, you know, social pressure being put on them. Uh, I, I could only imagine, you know, how, how stressful that that's got to be for them, particularly, now Larry, I think this is interesting, that the law really places the physician as the judge and jury, if you will, over a person's life of whether or not they are going to take it or not. It's the, the physician's decision, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, the criteria, like I said, the criteria that were used, I hesitate even to call them criteria, but the criteria that were used had no previous standing in medicine or in law. They're amb ambiguous wording, like grievous and irremediable. No one knows what that means. And all the test is whether or not the physician believes that those uh, criteria are met and they can't be uh, questioned or judged on that. So it is true. It's extremely subjective. And, uh, you know, before even to give you an example, when death was seen to be reasonably foreseeable, there was an example of an 80 year old woman who got euthanasia because they said, well, she's 80. So death will come sometime. So, uh, all of these criteria in actual practice, because they're not objective, because they can't be tested by, by a third party, it's just up to the individual physician to determine whether or not the criteria exist. So, uh, and then the idea of getting a second physician, uh, I mean, normally the people who do the assessments are people who are associated with the uh, euthanasia advocacy groups like Dying with Dignity. So their attitude uh, very often is, um, you know, uh, auto patient autonomy. So if a patient wants to die, they they will uh, look favorably on on certain aspects and and interpret it in a way uh, that will allow that patient to die. Let's just be really clear here uh, before we move on. Just help our listeners understand what would what would be what would take place or how. How does it unfold if a patient comes into a hospital and says, I want to die? You, you know that there have been tremendous pressures on the healthcare system during the COVID period. 
in Ontario, for instance, I've had numerous doctors tell me that patients are being sent to assessors before they've had received any counseling. So, uh, and the assessors uh, will will say that they don't they don't do any counseling. Their job is just simply to see whether the criteria exist, whether there's a grievous neuroimmunable illness, disease, or disability, whether the person is mentally competent, whether they're the right age, uh, whether their illness is in an advanced state of decline. These are what what is the right age? Uh, the right age right now is over eighteen, but there's they're they're considering provisions now to allow younger people to be euthanized. So so essentially. The the you know and it's interesting to note that only one percent of all doctors in Ontario participate in assessments or in providing MAID. Some doctors have done more than three hundred MAID deaths, uh, so it's a relatively small number of people who are who are doing this. Now, what should happen in an ideal world would be that the person would say, "I'm thinking of ending my life." That happened to my own father, you know, years ago before before euthanasia was legalized. He had a very serious skin cancer that was threatening his life, and it resulted in a long period between the time of his diagnosis and the time of his death. And at one point, he said, I, you know, I want to die by some kind of artificial means. And we had to spend a long time with him trying to understand what he was missing, what parts of his life, why he felt his life was no longer valuable. And it required listening, time, coaching, supporting, loving, and helping him to see that even though he felt he could no longer contribute anything, he was in fact contributing a lot. And he'd been a giver all of his life. He'd always given to us. And this was our opportunity to give back to him. And I shared with him how much joy that gave us to be able to look after him and to care for him. And sure enough, he contributed right up to the day he died in many, many different ways in terms of the encouragement that he gave so many people who came to his bedside. So I think that a lot of made requests could be dealt with, with that kind of listening, counseling, supporting, helping the person. But the question is, do we, are we providing those resources? Um, palliative care doctors are telling us about how they've got to incorporate made into their work or they don't get any more funding. And well, as they incorporate MAID into palliative care, then it cuts down the resources they have for that type of support. I think about, particularly here in British Columbia, the Irene Thompson hospice uh, situation, which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of. And I think, by the way, her, her uh, you know, case is such an interesting one because Irene suffered from uh, breast cancer and went into palliative care, but she recovered. And, and that inspired her to help provide you know, good care for other people, but made was not a part and and of their of their practice, nor did they want it to be a part of their practice. Why do you think the government would put so much pressure on them? Because uh, I don't know if you followed that case, but that case is absolutely ridiculous. What has happened to them and the kind of pressure that they have been under to provide made? Well, I, I would assess this politically. Um, politically in Canada right now, we have, I don't know what you want to call them, whether they're progressives or the woke crowd or whatever, they are very loud, but small in numbers. And they are driving all of the political agendas because our politicians are terrified to be criticized by them. We had a recent example in Ontario where I had a, a study by, done by a very reputable polling firm that showed that 85% of the people polled wanted conscience legislation in Ontario. 85%. 85%. And not only that, 41% said they were more likely to vote for the party that brought it in. Wow. We showed that to people in government, and they said, we'd like to propose this legislation. But if we do, we'll be attacked by the progressives, by the media, et cetera, and it'll make us look bad and we'll lose votes. So that, I think, in a nutshell, just tells us where we're at in Canada right now. The whole country is terrified to go against this uh, progressive, progressive agenda. I think the other thing is that because we only have one-sided press coverage, people don't see the downside of MAID. Right. All they see are the positive, you know, it's like a big sales thing. 
they see the positives and, you know, they think about Gloria Taylor and they think about Dr. Donald Lowe in Toronto, but they don't think about the vulnerable people who don't have that level of support, who don't have the finances, who don't have access to care. The people who are left in a quandary and a dilemma and are in loneliness. You know, the recent stats, for instance, recent stats show that 35.7% of the people who chose MAID in Canada in 2021, 35.7%, one of their reasons for suffering was that they perceived that they were a burden on their families. 35.7%, that's over a third. We had a, a, a palliative care nurse told me two weeks ago that she had her first patient when she said, why do you want MAID? She said, well, she says, there's such a need for hospital beds right now. If I die, then there'll be space for someone else. Talk about, you know, feeling, again, feeling like a burden and how much that is either explicitly, you know, communicated or tacitly communicated to people. You know, we are definitely seeing that uh, more and more, uh, which which should absolutely be concerning. And and I think here's one of the... I, ironies of what you just brought up with regards to vulnerable people. We're finding it that one of the vulnerable people is the physicians themselves. And, and I want to I wanna get into this with regards to effective referrals, because to me, I think this is, this is where Canada, uh, you know, takes things, you know, like, you know, we, we, we go into made, but then we take it so much further because it, it's interesting. I just got back from Europe and you know, Europe looks at what what's going on here in Canada, and, and you know, you know it's bad when Europe's shaking their head, going, "Wow, you know, <laughs> look at what they're doing over in Canada." But let, let's talk about effective referrals. What is it, and what are the implications of it? Let's let's get into that. Well, again, I think a lot of this is driven by the progressive crowd, the advocates who want made to be uh, legitimized. So they want made to be treated like any other healthcare procedure, and any other healthcare procedure, uh, you know, may require referral. And they want so they want made to be uh, to be referred. Uh, the problem is that no one has ever discussed the ethics of made in Canada. This this part has been totally missed, and the the attitude of the progressives is that if uh, something's legal, then it's ethical. And so uh, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are of the patient. The requirement is that the doctor uh, make a referral to someone who they know will do uh, an assessment uh, for the patient or who will get the person to an assessor. Uh, the reason that doctors can't do this is that for them, a referral means more than just passing the patient on to someone else. It means that the patient is still in their care and they are directly uh, facilitating that patient getting access to MAID, which they think is going to harm the patient and not help them. So that's the, that's the, uh, that's the requirement, but you know, it goes even further than that because now people are saying, well, it's also your responsibility to tell the patient when they could qualify for MAID. So, uh, if, uh, let's say you have a son who has a little bit too much to drink, jumps in the wrong end of a pool, wakes up the next morning as a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. What they're saying is that when you go through the various treatments for this condition, you have to include MAID. And this is happening more and more out there in the medical community where the doctors have just, uh, they feel, uh, many of them feel that they have to provide this information and uh, and are doing so, and it's become like a norm. So in other words, they're being forced to be complicit in this person's death. Forced to be complicit in this person's death, absolutely. Because the system sees this as a positive thing. Now let's talk about this though, because we're not talking about a legal requirement here with regards to effective referrals, are we? This This is the College of Physicians and Surgeons, particularly in Ontario, but I... But last time I talked to you, you were telling me that this is expanded outside of just Ontario. But isn't it, isn't it the co the the college that's that's putting this pressure on the physicians? Uh, yes, that's correct. But it they do have uh, legal uh, force because they are the regulators for medicine uh, in their province, and so that they can make this a requirement if doctors don't do it, 
then um, they can be disciplined. And we've already had uh, at least one case I know of where doctors have been disciplined for failure to provide an effective referral. What would that look like thus far? Well, uh, the, the thing that makes this so uh, strange is that in Ontario, through the telehealth system, if you were to phone um, telehealth and you answer certain questions correctly in a triage, they would direct you uh, immediately to a nurse practitioner who would ask you some more questions and then would have the authority to be able to uh, link you with an assessor. So our doctor said, well, why couldn't we just tell people about this service, which would be ethically acceptable to us because it's just the provision of information that's publicly accessible. So in other words, to be very clear here, what you're saying is instead of the physician having to provide this effective referral where they're handing them off to a physician that that's going to provide made, they're, they're saying, why can't there just be this telephone number or website or something else that just has the information that people can access. Why do I have to be personally involved in this? Is that what you're saying? That's correct. That's correct. And so we offered that to the college. That was not sufficient. Even though patients do that all the time, every day, the doctor's obligation, according to the college, is that we have to phone the number ourselves, get the name of the doctor, and set up the meeting. That, to me, is punitive. That, to me, is punitive. And it shows you the extent to which the progressive slash woke crowd are in control of of politics in Canada right now. Like in the Western provinces, for instance, in Alberta, uh, I think BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, there is a number that people can call. There are in Alberta, there are navigators who will help the person not just look at how to access MAID, but how to access alternatives to MAID. And this would be, in our view, the ideal system. Because we think that the the actual expertise in dealing with these cases is beyond the average doctor. And we need people who are really good at counseling to try to figure out what the real reason is that people want this, to see if there are alternatives that can be, be provided. We had a recent case in Ontario of a lady who uh, had an, an environmental illness and she couldn't uh, modify her apartment to allow her to live there safely. Uh, and uh, after a couple of years of advocacy and friends doing a GoFundMe campaign, she realized that her money was going to run out and she wasn't going to be able to get the place that she needed to be able to survive. And she just got tired of advocacy and she ended up getting made uh, and then shared you know, by way of a video that she did before death, she shared that it was economic privation that led her to seek uh, assisted dying. Now, tell me how any uh, caring physician could do an effective referral for that type of case. That The requirement of that is beyond me. It's barbaric. Well, I even think about a physician who's maybe had a long relationship with a patient where there's this 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 you know friendship here and now they're they could be forced to be complicit with this with this patient that they've come to care for i mean the kind of pressure moral pressure and social pressure that that would be putting on a physician i I, it's just unbelievable yeah and uh the other thing that's happening too is because uh death is now an acceptable outcome of medicine uh, situations can happen where uh, patients can decide they want MAID, they can set up uh, the assessment or even the MAID itself, and then uh, a palliative care doctor can come along and talk to them about why they want MAID and find out that there is a way to resolve this. Uh, I had, We had an example recently in Ottawa where a patient wanted MAID. One of our doctors went to talk to her come to find out that the reason for that is that she had been quite happy in a chronic care hospital and was had been assessed and was going to be sent to a to a nursing home and at that point she said I want made and she was approved for it the doctor came along and said well how would you feel if you could go back to that chronic care hospital and she said oh I'd be fine so he knew the person who did the intake at the hospital he called them up explained the situation and they moved her in, back into the chronic care hospital she's alive today So uh, we've had situations where people have talked to patients like that, and then the family and other physicians have been very upset with them. The family has said, 
you talked mom out of maid. Mom wanted maid, and now you've talked her out of it. Uh, we've had situations where a lawyer who was uh, hired by the patient to be their substitute decision maker had discussed maid with the patient, which is his legal obligation to do so, had discussed it with her, and she had changed her mind, decided not to go through with maid. The doctor then approached the substitute decision maker, the lawyer, and criticized him for talking to the patient about this issue. I even have one of my own, Larry, where uh, a nurse, there, this uh, elderly woman ha had gone in for surgery on her leg, and the lady wanted wanted access to maid, and and this nurse had no idea about it. She just came into the room to care for this this lady and was explaining to her what she was going to need to do to to deal with her leg post and how you know with some physiotherapy that that she would be fine. And and the the lady's like, wow, you know maybe maybe I don't want to die. And so she changed her mind on maid. Well, again, the nurse had no idea about this, but the nurse then leaves, and then this she gets reprimanded by the hospital, right? Be going, going, well, you just talked this lady out of getting made. And she's like, I didn't know she wanted made. I was just positive about her outcome. And I mean, we hear so many of these kinds of stories. I, I find them quite concerning. Yeah. yeah. It's And it's really odd to me that on the one hand, you know, we see a patient and we're like, okay, you know, she's auton autonomous. She can make her own decisions and her decisions are valuable when she wants made. But then when she chooses not to have it, apparently she's not competent enough to make that decision and she is being talked out of it. Like, what? Explain this one to me. That, that just boggles my mind. Yeah, it's a mind, it's a death mindset. Mm. Uh, I mean, if we look at it spiritually, guys, we can understand it. Right. Uh, my problem early on in this job is I, I used my political science education to try to understand what was going on, and it didn't fit into any categories. But if I listened to what my Sunday school teacher taught me when I was eight, it makes a lot of sense because sin um, perpetuates itself, right? Mm -hmm. Once someone kills 300 patients, do we really believe that they're going to be objective about 301? Right. I mean, it, 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 we can understand it through our Christian principles. I think that, unfortunately, we've been sucked in by liberal political philosophy that uh, tried to tell us that we could have a society where some people thought one way and some people thought the other. And you cannot have, in my opinion, you cannot have a healthcare system that values uh, death as much as life, because then the people that preserve life will be seen to be uh, uh, imposing their views on the people who believe that death is is uh, preferable. One point on this that I think is interesting just to just to note is that in all of this with with the College of Physicians Surgeons of, of Ontario and by the way isn't this now effective referrals are in other provinces as well? Uh the worst one believe it or not is Nova Scotia. Uh Ontario mm -hmm. second and then Quebec requires that the doctor uh send the file to their to their supervisor. How is Nova Scotia worse? Nova Scotia requires actually a formal referral. A formal. Uh, in Ontario, in Ontario, they've defined an effective referral as taking some action to ensure the patient gets access. Now, here's the thing that I find ironic from a legal standpoint: the college acknowledges that this is a violation of the physician's charter of conscience and, and religion but that it's justified. Whereas one of the things I find fascinating about, about MAID is that it's argued that it is the patient's charter right to access MAID. I, I just see this as so fascinating that, that the patient's charter rights, again, supersede the physician's rights, their, their conscience. Yeah, now... Maybe a little correction here. Maybe from what I read, Andy, what I saw was, for example, the uh, CMDA versus College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. In that case, they said the uh, the freedom of religion, that charter right, was being infringed, but it was justified. But as a, as far as I understand it, they didn't actually consider freedom of conscience, which in itself raises questions for me. Why didn't they? Why did they only talk about the freedom of religion and not freedom of conscience? Is that is that correct, Larry? Or that's that's correct. Um, 
there were two sections in play, the freedom of conscience in the charter and the freedom of religion. Uh, I think they chose freedom of religion for pragmatic purposes because they have jurisprudence to cover how they deal with that. Uh, so it was probably just pragmatic reasons. Uh, there's mm. haven't been a lot of court cases on conscience. So as a result, they just wanted to steer clear of it. Right. Um, but I think the, the key is that section one of the charter allows any one of these rights to be interpreted based upon the facts of the situation. So it's not like in Canada, it's not like in the United States, where at the time they wrote their constitution, their Bill of Rights was seen to be something that came from God, like it was intrinsic to human nature, to, to, to life. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? Uh, in Canada, uh, rights were seen to uh, not to be uh, extrinsic, but to be uh, coming from uh, the government itself. So um, the, the result is that um, these things are all subject to, uh, to, to the test of reasonableness. And the problem with the test of reasonableness is that it allows whatever the ideas are in vogue in the day, it allows those to trump everything else. Um, so it's kind of a very, very weak uh, constitutional mix. The, the whole idea of a constitution is that is that even, uh, that even though you're unpopular, the court will come and support you because you have certain intrinsic rights. Uh, in this case, uh, we were unpopular, uh, but the court didn't come to our aid. Larry, again, I want to thank you for your willingness to be on the show and to get into the you know the details of this topic as we've discussed it. I also appreciate your willingness just to be vulnerable with us and, and even to share your experience with us, even, you know, even with your own father. And, and I think it'd be helpful as we close the show to, to tell one more story. When we met in Ontario, one of the stories you shared was um, a friend at church that, that had gone through this process of dying and had his own moment of vulnerability and I think it's just so important for us to appreciate the need, not only, you know, that we understand what's going on legally here in Canada, that we, you know, appreciate the the challenges of this and the need to speak out on these topics, but we are talking about real people here. We're we're talking about people that need us to be able to step into their lives and to be there with them in their in those moments of deep need. So Larry, if you could if you could just share your story, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Well, I have uh, uh, a guy in my parish who was dying of, of esophageal cancer, and he, you know, he had been very close to me. You know, he and I had been friends for a number of years, and then he came to me uh, when he became palliative and told me that he wanted to be able to reach out to me if he got into a situation where he was kind of over his head, and I said, of course. He had uh, he had asked me to be his sponsor into the church, and so I had been present for his baptism and confirmation. And so uh, I'd heard from his son that he, things were not going well. He was at home uh, receiving palliative care at home, and he had had an episode. He called me via Zoom about eleven o'clock on a Friday morning, totally, totally upset, like just in tears. He had uh, gone to the bathroom that morning, had fallen off the toilet and uh, was on the floor and his wife couldn't lift him back up to the toilet so they had to call an ambulance so he spent 30 minutes on the floor waiting for an ambulance and he was just crying uncontrollably and i said what's wrong and he said i just feel so bad for my wife because i feel like i'm such a burden to her and i said well have you talked to her about this like how does she feel and he goes well I talked to her and she's not, she said, I'm not a burden that she loves me very much and she wants to care for me. And this is what she wants to do, you know, during my last days. And uh, so I said, you know, what do you think is causing all this upset? And he said, I'm not sure. And I said, well, I have a theory. I said, you know, maybe, you know, it's natural that you would be grieving at this time. And up until this point, you've, you've been able to deal with your grief because it's the losses have come, Oh, gradually, but you're getting a lot of losses this week. And so it's understandable that you would experience grief at this point and really feel like, you know, it's not worth going on. But I said, now is the time when you are going to show the greatest uh, example of your bravery. 
uh, because you recognize sitting on that floor how much God loves you and how much your wife loves you. And I said, it, you're only human, and it's natural that you should experience this, this grief at this point. And uh, he had to go back to visit with his family, but he texted me later, and uh, he said, thanks you know, for the conversation. And uh, he told his son that he wanted to see me one more time before he died. And they were, he got moved to a hospice. They were, thanks be to God, they were able to get me into the hospice, which was difficult during COVID. And I was able to pray with him and hold his hand and thank him for being such a good friend and such a good example. And then within 24 hours, he had passed. But after that experience, I got this awful sick feeling in my stomach and my heart just broke. Because I realized that if his interaction had been with a physician who was in favor of euthanasia, that conversation could have gone completely a different way. The physician could have said, we can get you euthanasia you know, today if that's what you want to do, and you won't be a burden for your wife any longer. And uh, hopefully that will help people understand that life is no longer the highest value in medicine. Death is just as equally an appropriate result. And uh, that I think is a crime. You know, one thing I hope really comes out clear to people as well as they've, as they've been listening is, you know, in the past when euthanasia was justified, they always use extreme cases, right, to justify something. For example, people in severe pain, chronic pain, you know, and, and when we do the, the literary expedition, we'll talk to the physicians you know, with regards to this. But in fact, as, as the stats show, right, Larry, I mean, the people with chronic pain are, it's, it's incredibly minor. Um, almost all cases of pain can, can be dealt with. I mean, it, it, the most severe, they could even be put into a coma if necessary, you know, while the physicians are, are working out what's going on. But over and over again, as you've sh shared and as, as the statistics have shown, that's actually not what's happening here with, with MAID. This is this is people who feel like a burden by by and large, and not cared for, or, um, or feeling that that they don't want to 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 be a burden to others. That these are the these are the ones accessing made, and it should concern yeah. us. Yeah, like other stats, you know, loss of dignity was fifty four point three percent. Well, if society tells you that you don't have dignity, if you can't do certain things, what do you expect will happen? Those people yeah. need counseling to be able to deal with their loss and to be able to, sh to be shown that they have dignity. You know, yeah. and then the disability community says, well, what do you mean that just because you can't go to the bathroom, does that mean that you don't have dignity? Does that mean a disabled person doesn't have dignity? Do you think I'm worthy of being injected with a lethal injection just because I've lost these capacities? You know, what is this saying about the dignity of the human person and our, our, our requirement as a society to come alongside people and to help them? And what's the Good Samaritan all about if it isn't about reaching out to those in need? Well, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule uh, to talk to us about these really important issues. Now, uh, before we let you go, just wondering if people want to learn more about the work of CMDA, uh, where would you send them? And is there anything that um, the, an average person on the street, so to speak, can do about some of these issues? What would be your sort of final words on that? Well, uh, you can read all about it on cmdacanada.org, which is our, our webpage. And, uh, and the good news is that we have a project uh, that will be launching, um, I would say, mid to late September, which is a video which follows the lives of three people, one a, a person with psychiatric illness, one a person with disability since birth, and the other with a life-threatening illness. And we're going to talk about um, how there are not appropriate services in Canada for these people. And we're essentially giving them aid without giving them proper alternatives. We call this project, No Options, No Choice. And it gives people an opportunity to write to their MPs, their MLAs, to encourage more resources for people who are vulnerable. And it also uh, will provide information on how churches can get involved in reaching out to the vulnerable and hopefully trying to reduce 
the numbers of people who are desperately taking their lives through medical assistance and dying. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this week's edition of the AC Podcast. Go straight to appositingscanada.com forward slash ACLE and sign up for the next upcoming AC Literary Expedition, where we will be talking more on this issue. So go, space is limited, so go sign up today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. This has been another edition of the AC Podcast. We'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. And until then, you know the drill. Love God, love people, love the medical professionals, and love those who are vulnerable. <laughs>